Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Well, hey, if you are listening to this in real time, it's the day after Christmas, and my hope is that today's a day that you get to rest a little bit and spend some time with the people that you love. But whether you're doing that or whether you're working or in the field today, I'm really excited about this episode because as is our tradition on this podcast, every season finale is always a Q&A episode. And I absolutely love these because over the course of a given season, there's always things that come up. This season, we had a huge emphasis on the sales process and on different elements of that. We talked later on in the season about electrification, other other issues that our industry is facing. And as these issues come up, again, there's always questions. And these Q&A ones are really cool for me because they allow me to try to give some nuance to things that we weren't able to go as deep in during the course of this season. So with all of that said, we're going to jump in and get right to it. We have a few questions here that I'm really, really excited to give some responses to. So get out a pen and paper and let's hit these questions. All right. Well, as we get going into our questions, the first thing I'll fill you in on is actually, as I record this episode now, I am at my wife's parents' house, and it is the day before Christmas Eve. I normally try to record these episodes as close to the release date as possible so that we can get as many questions in. I can sort through them and, and, and pick the best ones or, or combine questions if there's different people that are asking similar things. And right now, like I said, I'm, I'm in my wife's parents' house in the room that my wife grew up in using one of the most ridiculous mobile podcast studios I've ever assembled. And so for that reason, I'm going to hit six questions that summarize everything I have got throughout this season. And then I'm going to jump back into family duties for Christmas time. So with that said, let's go ahead and get started. Our first question comes from a dealer that's in the Southeast United States. And the question is this, can you get to $3 million without advertising? Here's my answer to that question. Yes, absolutely. You can get to $3 million without advertising. And actually, there's another question about advertising that's coming up here. And so we'll, we'll be spending some time talking about this. Um, I, I, I believe in advertising when it is icing on the cake but I believe that advertising should never be the cake itself. And I think that for most businesses in our industry that have been around for 10 or for 15 years that have an established base of customers, I think that the majority of those companies probably don't need to advertise at all. And and you've heard this on the podcast, right? Actually, just last week, we talked about it with Clay Dennis that if you have a thousand customers in your database and you have access to their email addresses, you probably don't ever need to advertise again because anytime someone buys a product from us, a fireplace, a gas log set, or a, a, I don't know, a gas insert, something like that. Well, that product needs to be serviced every year. And at some point it's going to need to be replaced as well. And if you've got a thousand people in your database that at different points of the last, you know, 
20 years have, have had you service their products or have bought appliances, there's a built-in cadence of reoccurring business there, which is where you should spend your time, not in going out and trying to find you know, magical customers that, that don't exist yet. So yes, I believe you absolutely can get to $3 million top line revenue without advertising. Now, here's, here's the way that I would do it. So if, if I was taking over a hearth retail store, say that was at a million dollars a year and we wanted to get to 3 million, to be honest, I would actually cut back most likely all of my advertising spends. I would cut back. I'm not saying that I would eliminate it because I believe in advertising in, in certain instances, but I would cut it back. Here's what I'd focus on. I would go all in on my company's website. And the reason why is that your website is something that you own. Whereas when you spend money on a Facebook ad, it's gone. The second that that customer clicks it, you, you don't own it. You have no equity in it where your website you actually own. Your website's also the front door of your company, and it's a tool that can generate literally hundreds or even thousands of leads each year for your company. So I would do work on your website to turn it into something that represents your company, connects with customers, and is a proven sales funnel. That's that's what I would do because that's going to be like the goose that lays the golden eggs. In addition to that, I would make sure that your sales team has a sales dashboard or a CRM system that they're using to track their estimates. So a lot of the reason that companies can't grow the way that they want is because they're always having to go out and get new customers because they don't have a good system of follow-up. And here's the thing is that imagine if you have a customer come into the showroom, they talk to a salesperson and they get an estimate written up, but they're not ready to book an in-home visit. So they leave. Well, if that salesperson enters the customer into their sales dashboard, they mark the unit that they looked at, the category of unit that it is, the price for it. They rank the opportunity as an A, B, C, or D. Let's just say this is an A-level opportunity. It's a great opportunity. And then they put a paragraph of notes about what happened when the customer came into the showroom. Well, if they can do that every single time somebody comes in, pretty soon that sales dashboard is going to be full of opportunities. And now you can use that to plan promotions. You can use that to send direct mailers or to call people back or to send emails. All these things you can do because of what's in your sales dashboard. And your sales dashboard sells from within the sales funnel as opposed to having to find new people that have never heard of your business to enter it from the top. And if your team can use a sales dashboard or a CRM, and when I say use it, it means every day. This thing is open 24 hours a day. Their phone calls get entered into it. Customers that come in the showroom get entered into it. And when people don't want to buy, you check them off the list, you mark them obsolete, and you get them off your dashboard. But if a sales team can use a dashboard like this, it is amazing the kind of damage that can be done. I've seen salespeople have have huge success with that and grow literally like individual salespeople by hundreds of thousands of dollars year over year just because of tracking their opportunities. So again, advertising is not bad, but advertising is about going out to find new customers. I would advise working on what you already have. Now, in addition to this, I would say the sales team needs to be following up a minimum of seven times per opportunity, a bare minimum of seven times per opportunity. And that might sound a little bit crazy, but if you think about it this way, people are really busy, right? So let's just go back to that situation where the customer came into the showroom, they got an estimate written up, but they weren't ready to book the in-home visit yet. 
Well, there's a lot of reasons why. We'll spend some time actually with a future question today talking about this. But when they leave, if the salesperson a few days later calls the customer and says, hey, Mrs. Smith, I know you were in the other day and you weren't ready to book your in-home visit. I'm calling because we actually have a promotion coming up next month that is $250 off of your kind of fireplace. And I wanted to see if we could get that in-home visit book just to make sure this fireplace actually will be a good fit for your home. That's a great reason to follow up, right? And, there, and there's one follow-up right there. Now, but let's just say that we leave a voicemail because the customer doesn't pick up because it's a random number. Well, we can now send that customer an email as well communicating exactly what we just talked about. We've just had two follow-ups. Now, let's imagine that the customer emails back and they had a question, so we answer that question. A couple days goes by, we haven't heard anything. Well, a great tactic that I like is to call the customer again. Hey, Mrs. Smith, this is Tim from XYZ Fireplaces. I was just thinking about you and your project because our installers came back from a job that was a lot like what you were describing, and I've got this really cool installation picture from it. And I was just going to email it over to you so you've got a little bit of inspiration for your project. Well, leaving that as a voicemail counts as a follow-up. And then you send it as an email as well. Now, you could have just sent the email, but I think that a multi-pronged approach is really powerful. And 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 even in this fictitious example, like we're up to four follow-ups here. Now, the key with these follow-ups is that they have to be intentional and they've got to be valuable. They can't just be, hi, um, I'm, I'm calling to uh, check in on uh, your, your, your project. That's not valuable to the customer. So we really want to do intentional work to make sure that we're calling with value. And when the customer says that they're not going to buy from us, we absolutely honor that. We check them off the list. All of that to say, if a team can follow up seven times per opportunity, and, and I will clarify, per, per good opportunity, right? Don't call the, the, the bad jobs back to try to win those. If your team can be doing that, it is incredible what starts to happen with the customers that close. Finally, to get a company to $3 million without advertising, I would say that you have to have a lockdown in-home sales model, which means that when a customer comes into the showroom, the, the goal of them being in the showroom needs to be finding a product that solves their problem giving them a price range for their project that is physically written down on your letterhead before they leave and booking an in-home visit. And the reason this is so important is that when a customer comes in the showroom, if we don't give them a a written down price range for their project, we just book the in-home visit, we're actually setting that in-home visit up for failure because the customer's not able to make a decision at the in-home visit because they haven't had anything put in front of them telling them what the project will cost. We want to rip that band-aid off in the showroom by giving a range that is written down on our letterhead. Doesn't count it does not count if we scrawl it on a brochure or a business card. It's got to be official. But this way, when the customer goes home, they're staring at this price range for a week and a half. They wouldn't have booked the in-home visit if they weren't at least considering spending this kind of money. Now, when your estimator comes out, again, they've had a week and a half to think about this. When that estimator comes out, if the product is a good fit and they finalize that quote in the home, more often than not, people are ready to go. Doesn't mean they always will, but but we need an in-home sales model, not just a, oh yeah, we go out to look at jobs. No, no, no. We, we don't go out to look at jobs. We have an in-home sales model. And uh, if, you can, if you can do those things, I, I absolutely believe 
that your business can get to $3 million or more a year because I know of businesses that are over that and they don't do advertising or, or they don't they don't do much of it. So so yeah, some answers yes. To get to three million dollars without advertising, uh invest in your website. You gotta turn your website into a sales funnel that drives customers and leads. And you can do that. You need to have a CRM system or a sales dashboard that your team uses to track your opportunities. Because if you don't track your opportunities, they'll fall out the bottom of the funnel and you'll need to use advertising dollars to go get more people. Instead, patch the bottom of your funnel by using your sales dashboard and your opportunities will come through. Seven follow-ups per good opportunity. And then you need to have an intentional in-home sales model. And if you do those things, you'll be in, in really good shape. Okay, great question. Um, next question. This is an advertising one as well. And, it, and it's just... Simply, should you run your advertising in-house or outsource it? And this is actually a combination of some questions that I'm, that I'm putting together. But essentially at the heart of it, it's should you run your advertising in-house or outsource it? Well, I think it depends on how big your company is, how many markets you operate in, and what you're trying to accomplish. So to give you an example, um, I live in Beaverton, Oregon, and Nike is just down the street from me. Um, Nike has a very complex advertising model, right? Because their company is so big, they're involved in so many different markets and so many different channels. And it would make a lot of sense that Nike either A, has a ton of in-house people or they work with outside agencies to help them. I would say for most businesses in our industry, you should do it all in-house, and, and here's the reason why is that if you are a retailer, well, you operate most likely in just one market, maybe two, you know, if you have two different major cities that you operate in, but you operate in one market and also there's not a lot of other competing businesses in that market. So as an example, again, I live in Beaverton, Oregon, Beaverton's a suburb of, of Portland between all of the fireplace retailers and all of the chimney companies, I'd, I'd be shocked if there was... 25 of them. I mean, I'd be shocked, right? I mean, and that's, and that's to, you know, to serve probably upwards of a million and a half people, maybe, maybe even more than that. By the time you get to all the surrounding communities around Portland, that's actually not that many businesses. It's very few. So it's not like you're competing against, you know, 150 other companies that have hired advertising teams and they're getting really in depth with their campaigns. That's not the case you could have a competitor that does the best advertising in the world and you will still break through the noise because there just simply is not as many people in the space as if you were selling a product like tennis shoes where there's, you know, thousands of people that are, that are uh, doing that as well. So yeah, my belief is that you should do it in house. So when we think about how to run advertising for a retailer, you know, popular things are going to be running a Google ad. Well, there's a lot of companies that charge you to run Google ads and, and, and it's not totally bad to, to pay a company to do that if that's what you want to do. But what I will say is that with about 15 minutes of research on YouTube, you can become an expert in running Google ads. Literally, you, you set up your account, you go in, you pick your audience, you pick what you want the campaign to do and you set a budget per day or per month and, a, and, and, and that's it. That's, that's all there is to it. And you can go in and fine tune and check your conversion rates and everything but it, there's no secret sauce or magic to it. Same thing with a Facebook ad. You, you pick your target audience. You pick you know, how many dollars per day or per month you want your campaign to go. And you launch it. Now, 
you know, when it comes to TV or when it comes to print, uh, you're likely going to be working with a rep from the the advertising company. But I would I would say with any advertising that a retailer does, my suggestion would be to do it in house, only because again, this should be the icing on the cake. Most of your business should be coming in through organic web traffic and through repeat business. That's where most of it should be coming in. And if it's not, those are those are things that you can pull on to actually to make it that way. So advertising is just the icing on the cake. And and because of that, I would suggest pulling it in-house. No one knows your business better than you. And again, with you know 15 minutes worth of research on, on YouTube, you can become an expert in running a Google ad or, or a Facebook ad. So yeah, my, my suggestion is to do it in-house. Um, if you pay somebody to do it, that's that's fine. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I have seen I have seen situations. I just had one recently where um, you know a company's paying quite quite a bit of money to uh, to someone for advertising, and when they actually got in to look at the Google campaigns, they were actually two two years old, two and a half years old. They never never had really been touched, and they'd just been running on repeat. And it's like, yeah, that was that was great to set that up. And I'm not saying that's bad, but is it worth continuing to pay a monthly fee when that campaign was set up two and a half years ago? And it hasn't been touched since then. So yeah, those are just some thoughts. You know, if you're a distributor or uh, a manufacturer, you know, this is, this is a, this is an interesting question too. Um, I would, I would also lean towards, towards doing uh, it in house. And, and the reason why, again, um, for distributors, I think that again, many distributors have an existing base of customers, which is a great place to market. Um, and the way to reach those customers, I think, is is, is limited, right? We, we know how to do it. We, we know where they are. So because we know where they are, I think that an in-house person can come up with some great tactics of how to advertise and, and, how, to, and how to get to them. Um, it's different when you don't know where your customers are. But, but for a distributor who's selling to you know, fireplace businesses, you, you do know where they are. So I don't think you need to bring in someone from the outside. I think you can do that all on the inside. Manufacturers are in an in, in interesting spot because they do both consumer-facing advertising along with advertising to their trade partners. And again, my recommendation for, for almost all of it would be to do it in-house. And uh, again, it's not, not bad to hire someone, not bad to hire a pro, but I think that for what our businesses do, um, I think the advertising is simple enough. We're not even manufacturers aren't dealing with huge multi-layered channels in the same way that a company like Nike or someone who's significantly bigger is. And so that would be, yeah, that'd be my recommendation. But again, it's just it's just an opinion. But but that's my that's my suggestion. And if you have follow up questions on that, we haven't talked a lot about advertising on the podcast before. Really, because I, I again, I, I it's not the icing on the cake. Um, it's a it's a little bit of frosting where it feels right. But if if you have other questions about how to do that, you know, feel free to write that in. We can address that in a future podcast. Okay, next question. This one comes from a dealer that's in the Midwest. What do you do when a customer has a price objection? And this is this is really really good. I was actually on a call the other day uh, with some salespeople, and we were we were going through the same thing. And I think that as we do sales training and business training and we get better at our leadership, um, we think, Hey, I want to work on, you know, bigger problems and, and how to address more complex things. But we keep going back to this basic thing, right? Of price increases. Well, what do you do when a, when a customer has a problem with your price? Because people always do. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that there is a, 
silver bullet necessarily to this question. But what, what I'd love to do is just share my process. So when a customer has a price objection, there's a specific way that I try to follow that. I'm speaking now as a salesperson on the, the showroom floor. But before that, I want to talk about the setup. So I think that showrooms must have a system of how they operate. There needs to be thought put into the psychology of the showroom to set up when that price objection will happen. And I'm, I'm going to kind of give a, a, a broad strokes overview of this. So for me, I really believe in showroom signage. And I believe on every product on the showroom floor, having a sign that gives an average installed price range for that particular product. So as an example, when we go to look at the gas inserts, right away, the customer is going to see you know, our good, better, best lineup. They're going to see some information and specs on the fireplaces that we have in front of them. And next to each fireplace will be a price range. Maybe this model is average installed price uh, 5900 to 6700 maybe that's our good and then maybe our better is 7100 to 7900 and then maybe our best is 8200 to 9000 okay so that's where we want to start and the reason why is that it will make the consumer start thinking about price early. And I believe in ripping off the price band-aid. Some people don't. They want to quote-unquote communicate their value first. Um, I don't believe in that. I, I believe in um, ripping off the band-aid with a ballpark range. Because at the end of the day, this is the average price for the stuff that you sell. And when people come into a showroom, they have an expectation to know that pricing. Again, if you went into a car dealership and there was no pricing on the cars... It would instantly make you start asking questions about the business. Now, with this, again, people talk about, well, but there's complexity and all of this. I totally get it. That's why it's an average installed price range. Okay, so that's the first thing. So when I'm talking to a customer about a gas insert, I can be talking to them and I can point up to the sign and say, yeah, you know, and, you know, most folks really spend anywhere from X to Y on a model like this. And I keep talking and I want to watch that customer. Now, if they stay with me, that's an indication that they are going to be okay with this price. Some people will just voice an objection right there. And at that point, I can move into you know, my process for, for price objections. We'll get there in just one second. Okay, so, so it starts with price ranges on the floor. Now, after this, when we're done talking with the customer about the product that we think is a good fit, I like to explain how our company works in three simple steps. So let's just say we're looking at brand X model of gas insert. So we can say, yeah, so based on all this, Mrs. Smith, I think that this brand X model of insert is going to be a really good fit for all the reasons that we talked about. So with that in mind, I'd love to explain the way that all of our jobs work here at XYZ Fireplace Company, just because most people don't buy fireplaces very often and the process can sometimes be a little bit confusing. So here's how all of our jobs work. Step one, before you leave today, I'll write you up an estimate range for this particular product so that way you've got a really good idea of what it's going to cost. It's going to be more detailed and specific than our average price ranges up here. 
Now, step two, if those numbers look good, we can schedule a time for our estimator to come out to the house, and they're going to take a look at everything just to make sure there was nothing missed in our conversation today. They'll confirm this is a good fit, and they can give you the final price when they're at the home there. And then step three, if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll go ahead and get this thing scheduled so you can start enjoying your fireplace. Now, let's come over here and write up your estimate. Okay, so that's my process. So I explain step one. How, how we do all of our jobs is before you leave today, we'll write you up an estimate for this. So that way you've got a really good idea of what this is going to cost. Step two, notice the language. If those numbers look good, we'll send our technician out. And then step three, if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll go ahead and get it installed. And then if you notice this, I did not ask for the estimate. I said, so let's come over here and we'll write up your estimate. So my belief is at this point with this customer, they have an idea of what these products cost to be installed because of our signage on the floor. Now I explain how all of our jobs work. Hey, this is the way that all of our jobs work at XYZ Fireplace. Step one, before you leave today, we'll write you up an estimate. So I've explained, we're going to write you up an estimate so that you have a good understanding of what this costs. And because I've told them about step two and step three, the customer knows they don't have to buy anything yet. And that removes the fear of getting the estimate. So now when I say, so Let's have a seat right here and I'll get that estimate going for you. I am commanding the estimate to be written up. And if you do this, you'll find most customers will allow you to write an estimate. Now, okay, I want to get to the price objection part here. So let's say we write this estimate up and the price range on the estimate is $9,100 to $9,600, pending what we find at the in-home visit. And we say to the customer... Yeah, so it looks like you're going to be somewhere probably between about 9100 and 9600 by the time this is all said and done. We can confirm that exact amount when we come out to look at the job firsthand. Would there be a good day next week for us to come out? And maybe the customer goes, oh, uh, no, uh, no, that, that's okay, but, but I, I appreciate you writing up the bid. So here's the thing for me, is that if a customer looks at your bid and says no to a free in-home visit for a product that they wanted, most often it's because they have a problem with your price. Most often. And what I've found is that when they say no, it's worth pushing in and asking, why not? Oh, okay. Hey, that's no problem at all. We can come out at a, at a better time for you. Um, can I ask why? And just put it like that, just curiously. Now, many people will tell you about the price. Ah, well, this is just a, a lot more expensive than we thought. Okay, here's where we come into the price objection. I know I took a long time to get here, but it's worth the setup. When I've set it up this way, when the customer says, well, it's just a, a, a lot more than we thought, I would recommend saying, oh yeah, I, I, I totally understand that. Can I ask what you expected to spend on this project? Now, the reason I like to ask this question is it's different than what's your budget. It's an expectation question. And a customer might say, oh, well, we just, we just thought these things were like $7,000. And at this point, we can lean into it. So when I ask about expectation, yeah, can I ask what you expected to spend on this project? If they give me a number back that is at all reasonable, I'll do whatever I can to hit it. So let's just say they said 7000 so oftentimes what I'll do is, I'll, is again, like if you can do this ethically, I'll say, oh, oh yeah, I mean, I, that's actually a really good budget number. And you know, that's actually exactly what the fireplace costs. 
it's just by the time we have the venting and the installation labor to it, that's what takes it up here to about about nine thousand. So yeah, I mean you're you're right in that that budget for the for the product. And and by by addressing it that way, I've found often it gets you right back into the conversation for an in-home visit where you can ask for it. Now, if they say, Oh yeah, but I mean it's still just way too much, I would ask them, Oh, okay, well, I mean, have you thought about doing a a self-install or anything like that? Because we could try to hit your budget number that way. And almost everybody will say, oh no, like we can't do this ourselves. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pry and figure out, is this actually a budget issue or is this fear? Because if it's a budget issue, well, we might be able to go to a different fireplace or take away some features to get the price where we need it to. Oftentimes it's fear. And so by taking things away to hit their number, that will reveal is the number the issue or is it, is it, is it, a, is it a tactic that they're, that they're using against you, fear or, or a, a negotiation or something like that? So again, let, let's just say in this situation, the customer's like, oh no, like, I mean, we really like, we, we're on a fixed income, like $7,000 is really all we, all we budgeted. Well, I want to be sensitive to that because I know how it is to have a budget and I'll jump right in and say, okay, well, uh, yeah, I mean, if, 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 if the budget is the most important thing, let's try to find you a fireplace that, that does fit that budget. Now, if we go away from this model and go to this one right here, we can get to at least a lot closer to that $7,000 price range. Now, you're going to give up the remote control and you're going to give up the, the decorative screen and just have a really simple one, but you're still going to get some really nice heat out of this. Would you be okay doing that if we can come close to your budget range? Because what we're doing with this is we're working with the customer. We're working with the customer. Now, there are times where, you know, it's, it's just an unreasonable number. They're like, oh, I, I thought these things cost $1,000 and there's nothing you can do. So you just, you, you part ways and you, and you wish them well. But the point of all this is that it requires a system. If you have pricing on your units for price ranges for average install price, it's kind of like a bouncer at the club. You're going to start to vet people early. And then when you explain your process in that step one, step two, step three, you're showing that, hey, we're going to write you an estimate and don't worry, you don't have to buy anything yet, but we can send someone out to the house if these numbers look good. But oftentimes those numbers do look good because they correspond to the numbers that you have on the showroom floor, but they're tighter and they're more customized. What I find at the heart of it, when there's a pricing objection, the most important thing is for us to be sensitive to that and to dig on if this is actually a budget problem and we need to try to accommodate that or if this is a fear tactic or a negotiation tactic. And I believe that by taking things away to lower the price, you can get to the heart of, is this a budget issue or is it something else? By taking things away, you're going to find out what the most important thing is and, uh, and be able to, to move on from there. So I know that, that was kind of a long answer with a, with a very you know, winding path to get there, but that is the way that I approach pricing objections. You have to have a system. If you, if, if you, if you don't have any pricing anywhere, you give someone a, an estimate when they have no clue what it is, like, oh man, those are way too expensive. Well, you haven't set them up for anything. So, so of course you're sticker shocking them and, and you know, they're probably going to leave and, and go somewhere else. So, so you have to set the environment up the right way. Really good question. Okay. Um, 
this is actually, this is kind of related. How do you get your team to write up more estimates? This is really good. So uh, I believe that more estimates equals more sales. And as, as I travel around and work with businesses in general, the biggest problem I see when companies don't have the sales numbers that they'd like is because the team is not writing up enough estimates most often. So writing up more estimates is really, really important. I would say the first thing is this. This this uh, comes from a book I just read on Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, the guys who started HP, and um, it's called Managing by Walking Around. This was this was something that they coined, and uh, they literally managed by walking around and just being among the people. Manage your sales team by walking around. If you walk around the showroom, if you watch them, if you observe them, you'll start to understand why estimates aren't getting written up and what the root cause is. I would guess your team will also be more vigilant to write estimates up when you're out there walking around. The second thing I'd say is I would say you need to meet every single week. So one of my favorite meetings to run when I was a retail sales manager was the weekly sales meeting. It's one of my favorites because as a team, it was our chance to get together, to have coffee, to laugh, and to talk about what we're trying to do and practice our craft to get better and better. If you can meet with your team every week, say every Monday morning or every Tuesday morning to talk about your customers and you talk about what you're trying to accomplish, you talk about how many estimates you wrote up last week and how you're doing with those, it naturally starts to improve behavior. And really the icing on the cake here is sales practice is that if you can practice with your team and you make it a goal of the practice is to get that estimate, it will start to build muscle memory for your team to do that every week. The other thing I'd say is track it, right? Track it, you know, understand how many estimates are being written up. Um, I, I've talked about this before, but for me years ago, if you would have asked me what percentage of customers walked out of the showroom with an estimate that came in looking for a fireplace, I would have told you, you know, I don't know, probably 80%, 90%. We don't get all of them, but we get most of them. And when we started actually measuring it, we were lower than 20. It was like 17% or something like that. It was really, really low because we, we didn't have our eye on it. And as I've worked with businesses, I, I've had other situations where businesses have said, oh yeah, we're, we write up a lot of estimates, probably 80%, 90%. And when they actually start to measure it, it, it is often in that 10 to 15%. So if you don't track the estimates that you are writing up right now, it's going to be really, really hard to write up more. So I think that's what you do. Manage by walking around, meet with your team every week, and, and track the amount of estimates. Okay, two more questions. This is a really good one here. Do you have any resources on getting your business ready to sell? Um, you know, to be honest, I, I, I don't think I have any really specific resources out. You know what? Actually, a couple years ago at the, it was at the virtual HPBA, I did a class about what needs to be in place for a business to be worth something when you're, when you're selling it. So that, that, that is kind of related. Um, and I'd be happy to, to try to dig that, that class up and, and pass it on. But what I would say is this, um, to get your business ready to sell means that you have to make yourself obsolete. That when someone is buying a business, they don't, in general, they don't want to buy a job. They want to buy a business that makes money with or without them. And it's not that they don't want to work in the business. Many people buy a business because they do want to work in it. But if you've got 20 years of experience and you're the smartest person in your company, and you can answer every single question for everybody, 
someone coming in is not going to have that skill set. So if you're leaving and they're coming in, your company is not going to work as well. So making yourself obsolete is the best thing that you can do if you want to get your business ready to sell. And this can be super, super hard because when you make yourself obsolete and you replace yourself, it means that people are going to maybe do things different than you. And it means that sometimes people will do things in a way that you don't like. Now, by you defining the systems and processes that you expect, this gives you a a good amount of control over this. But at the end of the day, you will be ceding control of your company to the processes and to the systems. And as, as long as someone is following what has been laid out for them, you don't have a lot of recourse if it's if it's still done a little bit differently than what you would want. And that can be a really hard thing for for your ego. But yeah, I would I would say um, the first thing I would do is replace yourself on the sales floor. I would I would invest in training people who can sell uh, better than you, and that might that might take some time. It might take six months to two years for you to build that, but you can build that. Um, I would work on hiring an installation manager, someone who is fully accountable for installations so that when problems come up, you don't hear about it. The installation manager is the one that hears about it and they can talk with you and you can pour into them to help them become wise and and, uh, become a better problem solver. But, But you need to remove yourself from being the easy button. As long as you're the easy button, people will continue to push it. And if you are looking to sell your business, that's what you have to do. And I would say this this process for, for most hearth retailers to make their business worth something, you know, that, that process is, is probably a minimum of two years. I would say it's probably two to four years to do that. So it's not anything that happens quickly. But if you can start working on replacing yourself and, and growing the people around you, that's the way that you get your business ready to sell. You know, and I'd also say push really hard into repeat business. Going back to that earlier question where we talked about companies who have 1,000 customers or 10,000 customers on their list, that list is really valuable if you can prove that every year you have a way of touching base with them, of scheduling maintenance appointments and service appointments. I would say that having a profitable service arm of the business with, you know, 10,000 customers, that, that's like, I think that's incredibly uh, valuable for someone to buy. Okay, final question. Oh, okay, this comes from my friend Quinn Lackey. Quinn's actually been on the podcast before. He was on a couple seasons ago when I was out in Lexington and we did live sales practice with him and Curtis. But yeah, Quinn actually just texted me this the other day and it's such a good question. He said, do you have a go-to response when a customer asks you about specific statistics of a unit, like efficiency on gas units or BTUs on a wood unit? Yeah, this is such a good question. And again, oftentimes we, you know, give the customer the code book when they ask things like that, or we give them an answer that we don't feel good about because it's kind of confusing. So, so yeah, so when, when someone asks about efficiency, what are they really asking about? Well, I think that they're asking, is this going to save me money or is this going to heat my home well? I I think that that's what they're asking. And, you know, 73.9% FE, it doesn't answer that question. So what, what I believe in is this, when someone says, yeah, so what's the efficiency on these fireplaces? I'll often frame it in the context of their house and say, oh yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, you mentioned that your home is about 1500 square feet and this is going to be on the lower level inside of that living room. And it sounded like that area was, was maybe 700 square feet of your, of your total home footprint. Well, 
my home is actually pretty similar to that. And I would say with a fireplace like this, if you leave it on medium heat, you're going to likely be able to heat that entire space after a couple of hours. That's the way I'll answer a question like that, at least at first. I, I want to put it in context of their home. And, and whenever possible, whenever my home overlaps with the customers, I'll try to use my home as an example, but tell them about how it's going to heat their house. Now, if they ask, yeah, but what's the efficiency number? So then you can jump into it and you can say, yeah, so the, the FE efficiency rating on this is 72.3. And that puts this within the top 20% of the most efficient units of our industry, right? Now, I'm, I'm making that statistic up. I don't know what it is. But what you need to do is to be able to put things in context. You need to put them in context. 73.4% FE by itself means nothing. But if you say, yeah, and that puts this in the top 20% of, of all units or whatever it is, you, you need to contextualize the statistics that you're giving. Very similar on a... On a uh, wood stove where, where BTUs would come up. You know, if a customer asks me how many BTUs is this, that's a clue. And actually if someone asks about the efficiency of a, of a stove, that's a clue as well. But with BTUs, I'll often say something like, yeah, you know, BTUs are kind of confusing. Like they're kind of like calories. What, what's a calorie? It's like, I'm not sure, but I'm only supposed to have, you know, 2000 of them a day and kind of make a joke about that. And what you can say is, you know, th these, these are rated at 75,000 BTUs an hour. What we find that means is a stove like this in your home is going to be able to heat most of your downstairs and burn for about nine hours on a load of wood. Again, contextualize that into what it means for their home. I, I want to go back actually, because I, I, I forgot about this with, with, with the gas efficiency. When someone asks about gas efficiency, in addition to talking about how much space it will heat in their house, hey, so based on your home, you know, it's about 700 square feet down below, this should be able to heat up most of that space over the course of a couple hours. Here's another angle that's really, really powerful when they ask about efficiency is to say, yeah, so, so here's how these fireplaces work. So, you know, this fireplace, when you run it on high, is about 30,000 BTUs an hour. And BTUs is kind of a confusing term that is, is a little bit nebulous as to what it even means. But that's, that's how much gas this is using every hour. Now, every month when the gas company sends you guys your gas bill, they actually charge you for every 100,000 BTUs you burn. They call it a therm. And if you look at your gas bill at the end of the month, it's going to tell you how many therms of gas you've used. Now, here in Portland, Oregon, a therm of gas burning 100,000 BTUs worth of gas, it costs about a dollar. So with this fireplace burning 30,000 BTUs an hour on high, this thing will actually only cost you about 30 cents an hour on high. And the best part, you can turn it down to low and it's only 10,000 BTUs an hour on low, which means this thing's going to cost you between 10 and 30 cents an hour to operate. And that's huge because the furnace in, in your garage most likely costs you 70 to 80 cents an hour. Now you see that. So I, 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 what I've done is I have contextualized how this will work in their home. So yeah, that, that's the way that I'll handle that is, is if push comes to shove, I will answer the spec question. I, I won't hide it from them, but I'm always trying to build a bridge to contextualize it. And, and I'm not perfect at this all the time, but that's the goal. Contextualize the statistic so that it becomes relevant for them. 73.9% you know, AFUE doesn't mean anything for them. 
75,000 BTUs now or on your wood-burning fireplace doesn't mean anything for them. But when you say, oh yeah, a fireplace like this based on your home should heat your entire downstairs and it'll burn for likely nine hours or so. We find that most people in this situation, if they burn 24 hours a day, they'll go through about five cords of wood in a year. I don't know, whatever whatever the number is. But contextualize the statistics for them. Um, yeah, super, super good question. And Quinn, I'm, I'm thankful for you sending that one in. Well, hey guys, those are the questions that we have. And that was really fun to answer. If there's any follow-up on that, feel free to send that back to me and we can try to address it in a future season. But I hope you guys got a ton of value out of those responses to your questions. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for listening to that Q&A episode. These are always super, super fun to do. I hope you got a lot of value out of it. And truly, these are an absolute joy for me. You know, as I said, as I record this, it's the day before Christmas Eve and I'm hanging out in Corvallis, Oregon, in the house that my wife grew up in, in the bedroom that she grew up in with a very, you know, goofy mobile podcast setup. And, and for me right now in the Christmas season, I'm thinking a lot about the blessings that I have. And I know the Christmas season is not easy for many people. There's been dear friends of mine that have had some terrible tragedies during this this time of year. And, and, uh, and it can be really difficult. But my hope is that is that you can find some kind of joy in this season. My hope is that you can reach out to somebody that is struggling right now and you can invite them into your family because at at the end of the day, why are we doing this? Why are we running businesses? Why are we installing fireplaces? I mean, yeah, you want to make a paycheck. I, I, I get that. But you know what? At the end of the day, the only thing that we're going to leave behind is the mark that we've left on other people. And, and I believe that through your business, through the products that you offer and through the way that you lead your team and, and that you bless their families and your families, I believe that you can make an impact that really changes things in our society. And as we come to this time of year for me, you know, in, in the Christmas season, every year for me is a very reflective time. And actually next week's podcast episode is going to kind of be about that. But it's a very reflective time. And I would say, I hope you're making space to think back on the blessings that you have and and the people that you have around you and, and that you let them know that you're thankful for them. My hope is that you can find someone to reach out to, to invite into the fold that might be struggling. This is the time of year to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I hope that this podcast is uh, is one of those blessings that that is helping invite you into the community. Well, hey, that's all we have today. I, I can't believe that we are 11 seasons in and coming to the end. I mean, uh, in many ways, I think that this podcast is uh, one of the most important things that I do. It's a huge blessing for me, and I hope it is the same for you. Now, for the next six or so weeks, we're going to have Firetime Magazine rapid reaction episodes as we normally do in between seasons. And the Tuesday after the HPB Expo, we're going to jump into season 12, which I'm super, super excited for you to hear. So if you're listening to this in real time, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. Be a blessing to the people that are around you. Take time to reflect at the end of the year. And we'll talk next week about setting up a rhythm and cadence of intentionality to go into 2024 the right way to make a difference. 
So hope you guys have a great rest of your week. We'll talk again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn. <laughs>